Please, congregation, turn your Bibles in the first place this afternoon to our Lord's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In connection with Lord's Day 37 of our Catechism, we're going to read Matthew 5, 33 to 37, as well as Matthew 26, 57 to 75. Read in the first place from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Here, our Lord says again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, the eve of our Lord's crucifixion. We'll begin reading at verse 57. Here in Matthew 26, our Lord has just been betrayed by Judas. He's been given into the hands of wicked men. And so we read at verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also are with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. When he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. 
Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know that man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless that to us as we meditate upon it. So after let's turn also to Lord's Day 37 of the Catechism, page 245 in the back of the Forms and Prayers books, or page 890 in the back of the Psalter Hymnal. Lord's Day 7, continuing the avenue of the Christian's gratitude, and on the third commandment especially, now ask the question, but may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes. When the government demands it, or when necess- or necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. Question 102. But may we also swear by saints or other created things? No. A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. This, the Church of Christ, does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I perused your sermon audio page earlier last week, I saw that Reverend Zylstar recently began to work his way through the Ten Commandments with you, and so as we continue along the avenue of the Christian's love for the law of God, we return again this afternoon to the Third Commandment. And if any of you are like me, perhaps you're wondering, why are there two Lord's Days on the Third Commandment, and why is there an entire Lord's Day devoted to the oath? After all, swearing oaths is not probably a routine practice in our day-to-day living, for the most part. We can let our yes be yes and our no be no. But if we consider the context in which this Lord's Day was written, then I think we'll come to see that the burden of the truth of this Lord's Day remains relevant for us today. As many of you well know, the Catechism was written at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And at the heart of that Reformation was sola scriptura, the returning to the scriptures to find our regulation for faith and life. It was in the context of the Reformation, this return to the Scriptures, that the Radical Reformation was also born. And it was in an overreaction to Rome's marriage of church and state that the Anabaptists overreacted and began to teach that once a person belongs to Christ, he or she is is cut loose, he or she is freed from the created natural world. And so they so separated the sacred from the secular and grace from nature, they rejected the use of the oath, asserting that the Christian has no business bringing the name of God into the civil sphere, into the courts, or anywhere else for that matter. For them, the name of the game was to flee from the world rather than to engage meaningfully with the world. But this idea of world flight was rejected by the reformers. For the Reformed forefathers were zealous to defend the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, the sacred 
word of the king was to be brought into the secular sphere. The, the king's word was to be brought into the king's world. And so by her confession about the oath, writes Herman Veldkamp, the church of Christ lifts high the name of God as a banner over every area of public life. Moreover, we learn also from God's word that the oath is a gift of God's grace. According to another Dutch Reformed pastor, the oath is there to give security in a life where people live in a lying world. The oath, you see, would not be necessary had the lie never been introduced to the world. But the oath, writes Hallwarda, at all times presupposes the dominion of sin. When God made humanity, he gave them the ability to communicate with each other. And the language that he gave them to use was the language of the truth. So that as his image bears, they might always speak the truth in love and build one another up in truth and love. But sin ruined that, didn't it? When sin entered the world, trust between the man and the woman was broken. And so trust was broken for all humanity. And so writes Ben Howard, the beautiful word communication wherewith we relate to each other became a heap of rubbish. We no longer know right off the bat if we can trust one another because after the fall, trust became something that needed to be gained. And now we live in a world where even where trust is gained, that trust can often be broken, can't it? And so we confess here in this Lord's Day that God gave the oath in order that truth and trustworthiness might be maintained and promoted for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. For when one uses the oath, one is placed in the immediate context and presence of God as he invokes the name of God. So I say, if I swear falsely, may God deal with me ever so severely. The oath is therefore an appeal to the final judgment. It's that in a fickle world of lies, we can anchor our words in the God of truth. And so when we swear, we swear by the God of absolute faithfulness and truth. This is the manner in which God spoke to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, saying, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. For he is your praise and he is your God. And this is the grace of the oath that God has given it to us so that stability might be established once more. It was for this reason that in his Sermon on the Mount, our Lord rebuked the people of Israel, for they had so made light of the oath, making it a light and trivial thing by swearing by other things, so that their oath didn't really mean anything at all. They would swear by, by the throne or by Jerusalem or by other things that they could find wiggle room out of their oath. And so to them, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If, if you're going to abuse the oath, then don't use the oath at all. When we swear an oath, says our catechism, we are calling upon the God who knows our hearts. We're calling upon the God who, who knows our hearts to witness to the truth and to punish us if we swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of that kind of honor. Now with all this in mind, it's quite striking, isn't it, that at the very climactic moment in human history, at the heart of it all is the oath. The climactic moment in human history revolves around the oath. On the eve of our Lord's crucifixion, the force of Satan are in full force against the Christ of God, and, and the oath is at the heart of it all. 
And so I invite you to consider with me this afternoon the Lord Jesus Christ on trial and under oath. The Lord Jesus on trial for the Church of Christ. The Lord Jesus on trial for Salem URC. The Lord Jesus on trial for you and for me. Noticing in the first place the false witnesses in verses 57 to 61. And then secondly, the faithful witness in verses 62 to 68. And then finally, the failed witness in verses 69 to 75. Well, after our Lord is taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is led to the house of Caiaphas, where the Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin, has hastily gathered together. And three groups of men were represented at this council. First of all, there were the elders of the synagogue in Jerusalem. Secondly, there were the scribes and the rabbis, the supposed students of the scriptures. And then finally, the chief priests are present as well. And we also know that these three groups were divided into two parties. You had the, the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. And while these two parties were disagreed on a variety of things, ranging from the existence of angels to the resurrection, on this night they are agreed. When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are all of one mind. They're all of one mind to crucify him. As we know in the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God had appeared in the flesh. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected the grace of God, and they have conspired against him throughout the course of his ministry. And it's all come down to this, to this night. The force of Satan have been at work ever since the promise was made in the garden. The force of Satan have been at work seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And this is the terrible fruit of their labor. They've taken hold of the hearts of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. The forces of the evil one have set out to find false witnesses to lie against God and to do so in the presence of God by testifying falsely to all sorts of, of accusations against the Christ. But what does the Spirit tell us? They found none, although many false witnesses came forward. The problem, of course, was not that they were lacking false witnesses, but the problem was that because they were all liars, none of their testimonies were in agreement with one another. But at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. But again, Mark tells us that even these two testimonies were not in perfect agreement with each other. But it's all sort of besides the point, isn't it? Because the Sanhedrin isn't actually seeking after the truth at all. But rather only seeking to lay a charge against the Lord, no matter how thin that charge may be. And all this begs the question, doesn't how did, how did we get here? How did humanity get to this place where they lie against God in the presence of God? How do we get to this place where men have come together under oath to swear by the name of God, not in pursuit of the truth, but rather in pursuit of promoting the lie? This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. This wasn't the way it used to be in the garden when Adam and Eve walked and talked with God and with each other in truth and faithfulness. Boys and girls, what happened? What happened? Well, as I'm sure most of you 
can answer is Satan entered in. Satan, whom Jesus called the father of all lies, slithered his way into the garden. And as a direct assault against the God of heaven, he lied to Adam and Eve so that Adam and Eve believed his lies. And so that they too turned their backs on the God of truth. And this is how our own communication came under the dominion of sin. This is how the, the great communication that God gave us to relate to him and to one another. This is how the, the great gift that was meant to be a helpful tool became a harmful weapon. As a former pastor of mine once said, when Satan lies, he's speaking his native language. It was a language that at one time was altogether foreign to us, the same way that perhaps the English language is foreign to some of us before coming to Canada. The language of Satan, the language of the lie, did not take long for us to learn, didn't it? It doesn't take long for our children to learn the language of the lie, does it? But no sooner do they start talking before they also start lying. And so from a young age, we learn to listen to each other with suspicion. We wonder if, if we can really believe the things we're being told. We turn on the TV and we wonder, can, is this true? Can I really believe this? We, we wonder, can we really believe what our politicians are saying? Some of us wonder, can I, can I believe what my physician is saying? We have all kinds of doubt and suspicion in this life because we live in a world of lies that follows after the father of all lies. Not always so sure who to believe. We don't know what to believe. Because in this world of lies, people lie for their own personal advantage. And so we don't always know who we can trust or to what degree we can trust them. And all this falsehood that pervades our world, it all has its origin in the rebellion against God. That's where it all began. And so the whole of human history is a history of this struggle, this ongoing Struggle between, between the truth and the lie clashing together all the time. And it's all mounted to this night in Matthew 26 where we discover that Christ has, has entered into this world of lies. Christ entered into this world of, of false witnesses in order that we might be saved in virtue of his speaking the truth. In his grace and mercy, Christ enters into a world of false witnesses, he comes to benders of the truth, he comes to liars and to shady business dealers, he comes to, he comes to you and to me. And not only that, but he ultimately suffers dearly for it, doesn't he? Here in Matthew 26, the kangaroo court is in session. The Sanhedrin has sought false testimony against him. Many have borne false witness against him. They're all guilty of perjury, of, of lying before God in the presence of God, having themselves come under oath. And the gracious gift of the oath has been weaponized by the forces of Satan. And fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah, here the Lord Jesus stands silent in all of this. He does not raise his voice to defend himself. He doesn't request a, a defense attorney to plead his cause and in innocence. He does not defend his prophetic word, how, how the temple that he had described was a pictorial language of his temple that was his body. That though to be destroyed, it surely be raised in three days. 
And so we read in verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so writes Klaus Skilder, the chief prophet, maintained the profoundest silence in the presence of the highest court there ever was in the history of the world. In the midst of this raging war of Satan to bring about the damnation of the whole world, Christ holds his peace. He remains silent. But then finally, our Lord is taken to the place and to the point where he can remain silent no longer in verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest requires Christ to testify under oath. And even this is, is a rejection of the Christ. Because if Jesus is the Christ, then he has no need to swear by God because he is God. But in keeping the third commandment, the Lord Jesus humbles himself, and the Son of God swears by God. And he does not perjure himself, he does not lie under oath. But he testifies to the truth of God, and in so doing, the Lord swears to his own hurt, as Psalm 15 said. This Jesus does so that he might graciously redeem those who have rejected grace that by his truth we might be set free from the power of the lie. Do you feel the, the weight of Christ's humiliation for you? Here are the men of the Sanhedrin, like Moses at the burning bush. They, they indeed are standing on, on holy ground in the very near presence of the Holy One, the great I Am. They should be bowing down at his feet and, and worshiping with reverence and awe. They should be singing with the psalmist, Now unto Jehovah, ye sons of the mighty, all glory and strength and dominion accord. Ascribe him glory and render him honor and beauty and holiness. Worship the Lord. No, here they are, not resolved to worship our Lord, but to crucify him, to put him to death. It's the most solemn hour never in the history of the world has there been a trial as significant as this one. For here in this trial there is but one truth teller. Here is, there's only one who is just and he swears to his own hurt. He makes the good confession in verse 64. Jesus said to him, it is as you have said. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? It is as you have said. Or as, as Mark records, Jesus says, Ego eimi, I am. He takes the divine name upon his lips. I am. Yes, I, I am the Christ. He prophesies concerning the truth of God's word over against the lie of Satan. He goes on to say in verse 64, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. With these words, Christ is evoking the imagery of the prophet Daniel from Daniel 7.13. And he's applying them to himself, that prophecy which, which spoke of the unstoppable breaking in of the messianic kingdom. He says, that's about me. Yes, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. That kingdom won't be stopped. Although it would appear to the world this fateful day belongs to Satan in the future belongs to Christ, the one who stands accused. 
And to him and to his chosen one belongs that eternal Daniel 7 kingdom that cannot be moved. As we sang in Psalm 15, Christ is that blessed man. He is that man who slanders not his brother, who does no evil to a friend, to reproaches of another. He refuses to attend. Wicked men win not his favor, but the good who fear the Lord. From his vow he will not waver, though it bring him sad reward. Christ does not waver from his vow. But Christ swears to his own hurt, saying, you have said so. He swears to his own hurt. This Christ did for you. For this oath binds him to you. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? To which they all answered, he is deserving of death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is that struck you? making the good confession under oath Jesus has signed his own death warrant the truth condemns him before sinful men and he is put to death for blasphemy and according to the gracious wisdom of God this Christ willingly endures for all the lies for all the blasphemies for all the sins of of Salem URC this Christ endures for For you and me, for he himself is the the faithful witness. And so Matthew is summoning us to to behold him this afternoon, to behold this, our our unwavering Savior. With the eye of faith, you see him standing before the Sanhedrin, swearing by God that he is God for you. You see him being mocked and ridiculed. You see him being spit at, slapped, and beaten, enduring the ridicule of wicked men for you. Christ, of course, was no blasphemer, but he, but he comes to die for blasphemers. If your sin of blasphemy, if your sin of, of all the lies ever spoken was to be covered in the sight of heaven, then Christ had to swear to his own hurt. And so, as our catechism says, in order to promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and for his neighbor's good, for his neighbor's good, Christ reverently swears an oath in God's name. He is the faithful witness. Christ is he who walks uprightly, who does the right without a fear. When he speaks, he speaks not lightly, but with truth and love sincere. Christ came under oath and he spoke the truth for us. But while Christ was testifying to the truth of God's word, while Jesus was making the good confession, his dear disciple, Simon Peter, was denying his confession. The very disciple who not long before had had confessed, you are the Christ, the son of, of the living God, now denies ever having known him at all. Not once, but three times. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up and said to him, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. 
But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Peter invokes the name of God and under oath he denies God. And this too is a solemn moment in redemptive history, a fulfilling of the prophecy that, that even those sheep closest to the good shepherd would scatter. Not even Peter stays true to Jesus in his evening of suffering. And immediately while he, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The rooster crowed, and Luke tells us that when the rooster crowed, our Lord looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord saying, you will deny me not once, but three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. In his sin, out of his fear of man, Peter turned his back on the faithful witness. How could he do such a thing? And yet by including these words in his gospel account, is not Matthew holding up Peter's failure as a mirror before our own eyes? So that the question is not just how could Peter do such a thing, but how could we do such a thing? None of us here are innocent of the sin of Peter. We've all failed in our witness to Christ our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We've all been Peter at one time or another. We recognize that in our profession of faith, our yes word, our I do word, is an oath word before God. There we promise before God to continue always steadfastly in our profession. We declare that we promise always to despise and humble ourselves before God because of our sins, and to seek our life not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. And there we declare that we love the Lord, and that's our heartfelt desire to serve the Lord according to his word, to forsake the world, and to put to death our old nature, and to lead a godly life. And yet, how often haven't we fallen short of keeping those vows? How often haven't we as husbands and wives fallen short of of keeping the vows that we've made to each other? How often haven't we as parents fallen short of of keeping those vows that we made when we brought our children forth for baptism. How often we as office bearers, as minister, elders, deacons, have fallen short in those vows that we've made before God, fulfill our offices faithfully and to walk in all godliness. In the midst of such failure, we stand in great need of forgiveness, don't we? We recognize that when we place ourselves in Peter's shoe, when we place ourselves under that, that gaze of the Son of God after he had denied him three times. In the midst of such great failure, we stand in need of great forgiveness. And that's the faithful witness wins for us, full forgiveness for all our failures and falling short. And for this reason, Christ not only swears to his own hurt, For this reason, he not only endures the mockery of the soldiers, but for this reason, that we might be forgiven. Christ goes all the way to Calvary, all the way to the cross. What do we read at the end of Mark's gospel? 
And the trembling Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James, stand at the empty tomb. The angel said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter. Congregation, that's the gospel right there. And Peter. Go tell the disciples. And Peter. For although Peter had denied Christ, Christ had not denied Peter. Although Peter had failed Christ, Christ had not failed Peter. And so the failed witness becomes the forgiven witness. When Jesus saw him after the rooster crowed, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And yet, writes Ashley de Graff, Peter knew his master. He knew of a grace that would one day conquer everything. Therefore, he did not despair unto death like Judas had done. Peter mourned over his sin. But he yet knew the Lord Jesus. He knew the grace of Jesus Christ. And so when our Lord found Peter, what did he do? And if you read the end of John's gospel, the Lord restored Peter. In answer to Peter's threefold denial, Christ gives him a threefold restoration. Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, tend my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. This is the grace of the faithful witness. The Lord of heaven comes to us in the third commandment, and he speaks to us with words of warning. God speaks in the third commandment and says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For whoever takes his name in vain, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. But here we sit, alive and well. And yet God's word has not been broken. Boys and girls, how can that be? How can it be that God can render us guiltless when he said, If you take my name in vain... I will not hold you guiltless. How can that be? It can only be so in the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him to be sin. God made him to be guilty. Who knew no sin? Who knew no guilt? So that in him we might become guiltless. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And so he's saying, what shall I render to Jehovah now for all the riches of his consolation? With joy I'll take the cup of his salvation and call upon his name with thankful vow. That when we behold the faithful witness, when we see his forgiving grace, when we repent of our sins, we live life anew, don't we? And we bear witness to him faithfully. And fruitfully, that's the grace of the Son. That's the restoration he works in our hearts. It's that the faithful witness makes failed witnesses to be forgiven witnesses and fruitful witnesses in the service of the kingdom.